0: Welcome to In Conversation, the regular podcast of Encompass. Go to encompass-europe.com for free access to all our podcasts to date. This is Paul Adamson. I'm in conversation with Kim Derrick. Lord Derrick of Q is the former UK ambassador to the United States, former permanent representative of the UK to the European Union, former national security advisor, and many other top jobs in the British uh, diplomatic system. He's also the author of this new book, Collateral damage, Britain, America and Europe in the age of Trump. So let's start with let's start with the, the title, Kim. I remember haranguing you on more than one occasion about you have to get a attention-grabbing title. It's almost as important as the book itself, the content. So where did this particular title come from?
1: I will be completely honest with you, Paul, and tell you that it was my wife Vanessa's idea. We she actually conjured it up first. We assembled a list of about ten. Uh, and this was our joint favourite. I ran it past my agent. Uh, Wall Street was the best, and then the publisher initially had some doubts. I think they were about copyright issues because there's a film called Collateral Damage. And there's one other. There's a few other books that have it in the title, but the subtitle "Britain, uh, uh, Britain in the Age of uh, Britain, Europe and America in the Age of Trump" um, distinguishes it from the other Collateral Damage. Um, <laughs> Uh, books, so, um, so that's what we settled on. Okay. And of course, you know, it's uh, as we will discuss, um, uh, it's chosen because this is one theory about the leak,
0: right? So, that's the question, I suppose, which is begged. Uh, do you see yourself, or is it others that see you as collateral damage in this whole story?
1: There are several theories about the leak, uh, of which Uh, One is that because the letter went, letter was that was the most combustible issue in the leak. Uh, The leak was about thirty pages of documents, including three or four cables that I had written,
0: going back some time, of course, not recent ones. Uh,
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, there there was four cables from twenty nineteen, and this letter from twenty seventeen, written for a very senior ministerial meeting. UK ministerial meeting about six months into the Trump presidency. uh, And uh, uh, that was the one that had the most critical comments about the president and his administration and the one that provided all the headlines. And uh, three theories about about what happened. It could have been just about money because after all civil servants, especially very junior civil servants, aren't very well paid. Uh, It could have been, it went to about six departments. And, you know, the president is a controversial figure, but he has plenty of supporters in America, but also uh, elsewhere. And it could have been someone inside the system who thought I was being really unfair to President Trump and thought that this should be exposed. Uh, Or it could have been, uh, since people knew I was leaving in about six months, and there had been some newspaper speculation already about my successor, it could have been trying to kind of uh, tilt the succession towards say, a strongly Brexit supporting political figure rather than, a, rather than a diplomat. If it were the latter, it obviously didn't succeed because a close friend of mine, Karen Pierce, uh, also a diplomat uh, who I'd been with in Japan she' had been on my uh, she'd been also been posted to Japan on my first posting I've known her for 40 odd years um, she uh, she has uh, has taken the job
0: right well obviously it's water under the bridge so we shouldn't maybe spend too much time on that but one quick thing uh, before moving on um, Will there be a leak inquiry? I asked the question because Peter Ricketts, uh, your former colleague at the head of the Foreign Office and ambassador to to Paris, said in a very ecstatic review of your book in the New Statesman about, you know, what's happened to the leak inquiry. So what is is your best information about
1: that? It's a very fair question. And when I got back from Washington, uh, the inquiry isn't being done by the internal cut it off his leak inquiry, uh, you know, it was handed to the police because it was considered so serious. And uh, the police asked me if I'd drop in on them when I got back, which I did uh, and talked to them. And they asked if I any theories and I gave them what theories I had. They had the same theories already. Uh, and as far as I know, that inquiry is still in train; It's still going on. Certainly I haven't heard that it has stopped. To be honest with you, I mean, I'm now several months, obviously, out of the Foreign Office. I don't feel it is, it is easy for me to keep ringing up and saying, where have you yeah. got to? I think yeah. that's, that's a matter for, for people inside the Foreign Office. Uh, I don't think the police, when I talked to them, were very optimistic about finding who had done it, because although the letter I wrote said, do not circulate further, I went to about six people, it was circulated further because it's so easy yeah. with IT, as you know, Paul, just to press a button yeah. and send it on to other people. Okay. And a bit of that had been going on, so it had a much rather, a cons- considerably wider circulation than it should have done. And I think the police thought that made it much, much harder
0: to, to identify who had leaked it. Okay, so bottom line, we won't hold our breath until to wait for the outcome. Okay, let's go back a bit. Kim, because um, you're very open in a way. You're very self-aware in in the book about because uh, the book is not all about you know those few days leading up to your resignation. It's much broader and richer than that. Uh, go back to when the the, the circumstances in, in which you you got the job as ambassador in the first place, and and quite uh, maybe exceptionally, you were told at the outset by by the head of the civil service at the time that uh, you're your posting would not be necessarily for a full four years. It may be only, would only be for say for 10 years. And, and I just wonder whether when you obviously it's still a very uh, prestigious position to have, did that uh, weigh on you at all? Uh, the possibility of that leaving within two years as opposed to a full four years?
1: Yeah, I think it wouldn't have been within two years. It would have been between two and three years, maybe, maybe okay. two and a quarter, maybe two and a half. Honestly, it didn't weigh on me for, for two or three reasons. For, number one, Stuff happens, and it always happens. So the idea that you could plot ahead two and a half years and say X will definitely succeed, Y then was, um, you know, I thought quite a, quite a jump, and, and you know, uh, events could take over. Second, um, I was already, I mean, in the old days, in the old days, for, uh, Foreign Office had a compulsory retirement age of 60. I was already a couple of years over that, so I was already on borrowed time, as it were, <laughs>
0: right.
1: and uh, the thought of actually leaving uh, at the age of 64 or 65, I thought probably my time was <laughs> up then anyway, and uh, you know, if I was going to dabble my toes in the private sector, they wouldn't be interested if I was much older than 64, 65. So... Um, Actually, I was quite uh, quite relaxed about it. I wasn't sure that it would actually happen. And in the end, it didn't yeah. because of uh, of the Brexit vote and David Cameron's resignation. But even if it had, I would have been quite content to do the job for two and a half years and then
0: and then move on. But but on David Cameron, of course, I think I'm right in saying within six months, more or less, of you arriving, that the prime minister who had appointed you resigned. And maybe for the edification of our listeners who aren't following this kind of stuff in, in great detail, was there any... At least a theoretical possibility that the new prime minister would want to appoint her own person in Washington
1: there is always that possibility because the Prime Minister does have the right to appoint uh, i mean any ambassador actually, but in my experience, they only really sort of sort of occasionally look at the very top jobs, um, but uh, prime ministers sometimes want political appointees in uh, in jobs, um, so yes, it would have been. Uh, more than theoretical, it would have been quite possible, really, for, um, for Theresa May on coming in to uh, say she wanted someone else in Washington, and I would just have bitten the bullet and um, packed my bags and you know, and gone. Um, right. I knew her quite well from my time in Brussels, when, as you'll remember, Paul, she was over, she was Home Secretary and over for internal, um, for Home Affairs, Interior Affairs councils every month. So I thought I, I had a, a good relationship with her, but had she wanted to send a political appointment to, uh, to um, Washington, perfect right to do so, and I would have um, shrugged my shoulders and, and moved off.
0: Well, finally on this part of our little chat, I mean, you and I know, and others listening to this podcast would know that the, this, when Trump began talking about the possibility of wind up having this chap called Nigel Farage of the ambassador, it's all froth. But did it nonetheless, maybe to the local audience in the US who were not familiar maybe with how the UK political system works, did, that, did it kind of sort of, people look at you as briefly and say, well, how long are you in this job because this chap and Farage seems to be the, the preferred choice of the president of the United States?
1: They totally did. Because um, their system, as you know, is that when the president changes, Every ambassador, every senior ambassadorship, because they 're all political appointees, all the senior jobs of political appointees um, changes too, uh, and you know, most Americans wouldn 't know that our system is entirely different so uh, it 's unusual, obviously, if not unheard of, for the president to sort of tweet his his suggestion on. Who might be appointed? Um, so that was pretty extraordinary. But people kind of assumed that when David Cameron resigned and Theresa May took over, that maybe I would be—I'd um, uh, be changing. So even before that presidential tweet, uh, people come up to me at, uh, at receptions or say, whisper at dinner, um, uh, "Are you going to stay on, or will you be? Will you be moving?" So uh, in a sense, that. Um, you know, that That fueled the story, that tweet that was already already sort of simmering away all right
0: well let 's move on then um, I know you 're not a big fan of the phrase "special relationship," and you say in the book and elsewhere in interviews that you, you didn 't actually ban its use, but you discouraged its use but but I raise it because historically at least the, the u k has has tried to maybe t- as a kind of uh, support use that concept, this idea that there 's a special relationship between the uk and us and of course you knew from your experience that wasn't the case so um and you say in the book that u.s officials would often tell you very openly that they had more contact with their first port of call as well, would be berlin rather than london but but nonetheless how did you as the ambassador kind well, of leverage that even though you knew it wasn't totally accurate
1: i mean you're you, you've, you've rightly identified some comments in the book i should uh, i should say that that the first port of the first, you know, phone call was to Angela Merkel in the Obama period. I was there for the last year of Obama. Obama had grown very close to to Merkel, and the that U.S. administration believed that we were um, somewhat marginalised in Europe, and so you know, that was what they thought in terms of what Europe was thinking or doing. All things. That's where they thought you should, uh, you know, that was a phone call you needed to make first to Merkel. I would say that the relationship, though I might have discouraged use of the term, it's still special and uniquely so, Paul, in the defence, security and intelligence relationship, above all, where it's extraordinarily close and collaborative and as strong as it's ever been, if not stronger. Um, and then it's culturally very close. Um, and uh, you know, many, many British cultural icons have made their fortune, um, whether in America or at least in American films and plays yeah. and yeah. musicals and whatever. Uh, and uh, you know, there's a huge amount of person-to-person interchange as well. You know, millions of tourists going in each direction, at least there was in the pre-COVID-19 days. So it's still... Um, uniquely strong. Uh, the problem with we using the word special all the time is the more often you use it, the kind of less special it sounds. <laughs> it sounds a bit a bit needy or it does to right. um, to at least some of the younger generation of Americans who may not recognize its glorious heritage and the Winston Churchill speech and all the rest of it. So right. but I mean, you know, there are still special aspects to it.
0: Well on that I, I let's assume that's the sake of argument that there is on many occasions, in the areas you specify, that some kind of direct line between uh, Washington and London. But when it comes to the, the British ambassador in Washington, and uh, I'm, I'm sure you're you're in the loop, but you're not maybe not always. You, the ambassador, whoever he or she is at the moment, in every single discussion at that highest level. But nonetheless, your your position is to deploy a lot of, in effect, soft power, right? And you have you're well served by having this fabulous residence. Maybe not a huge budget to to go entertainment <laughs> budget to go with it, but the the residence itself is is extraordinarily uh, impressive and a and a hot ticket. So, how did you? As well as inheriting all these things in terms of invitations and how you should do things every on a regular basis, because that's what your predecessor did. How did you how did you manage to have some kind of strategic uh, underpinning, if you like, of what may seem rather frivolous and silly reception dinners and uh, high level uh, cultural gatherings that you host? Well,
1: I mean, first of all, you you cannot use. I mean, you know you know the residents, and you cannot you cannot overuse that. Um, it has problems, as I mentioned in the book, the plumbing is falling apart and the outside drains are falling apart and um, you get occasional power cuts and so on. But it is still, um, although although the ambassador in Paris might argue the finest residence we have in the United States worldwide and a huge asset. And we did 800 events a year there. Uh, not all grand dinners. That includes working breakfasts, working lunches, coffee mornings, uh, afternoon tea, receptions, and so on. But you know, I reckon I was present of those eight at those of those 800 events. I was present at 95% of them. So you spend an awful lot of day uh, of your days over there, meeting people and using those rather special surroundings to try and encourage people to tell you a bit more than they would tell any other diplomat in town. I was there in election year 2016. When I arrived, so you use that as a convening place for the teams of both the, the candidates who are going to do the runoff of the elections so who are trying to get and succeeded to a large extent getting close to both the Trump uh, team and the Hillary Clinton team. Other than that, look, the main assets I had in going there were people knew I'd been ambassador to the European Union and I knew the EU, so even if in terms of ringing up to discover what the EU was going to do next on something. You might ring, Obama might ring Merkel before he rang Cameron. Um, in terms of EU expertise, uh, the, the esteemed David O'Sullivan was there as well, but you know, he and I were the big EU geeks in town and they turn to us. And then the other thing which I used a lot was my four years as National Security Advisor, which meant I already knew Quite a lot of the senior people in the White House, from Susan Rice through Ben Rhodes, through Tony Blinken, and uh, and so on. So you use all of those assets, right. but you also, Paul, just to finish this very quickly, Washington is not America. You know that, I know yeah. that. And the more I got out uh, into the rest of America, the more I realized how different Washington was from, say, the Midwest
0: or the Deep South, or the Southwest, or you know, right. So, irrespective of the of the existence of, of or not of this special relationship, when the UK was a member of the EU, it liked to play the card, or like to see itself, or even try to position itself, and maybe you're part of that as a bridge between the US and the EU. Uh, was that was that taken? Was that a credible assertion to make?
1: It or was deluding. Yeah, no, it was Paul on some issues still. Uh, Again, I mean, you know, you're sitting at the uh, essentially EU power. I always felt in when I was in Brussels that on a lot of internal issues, especially the eurozone crisis after the uh, financial collapse of two thousand eight, the Germans really were call, calling the shots. But on foreign policy issues, on the EU's position on international issues, uh, on um, what was going on in Russia or relations with China or uh, Syria, um, or international trade issues, where we were the leading trade liberal, um, we could still call the shots, and foreign policies, as the French would probably say, then we call the shots. So, the Americans understood this, if they wanted to influence the EU stance on a sanctions issue, or on relations with Russia, or on uh, handling China, or whatever, then they would come to us and say, how are things around that EU table? What are you arguing for? Here's what we'd like the outcome to see to be. So if you agree with us, you know, we hope you can push, push these arguments. So on foreign policy, I thought we were still you know, the key interlocutor. But when it came to, say, the Eurozone's problems, then uh, then uh, they looked at uh, to Germany.
0: Well, I suppose the corollary of my last question then is now that the UK has... Left the European Union. How do you think the UK is going to play this line about being a key player? And how do you think the US now regards the UK now that the UK has left the European Union?
1: I think, Paul, it depends who wins on fourth of November. Um, Voting on third of November, we'll get the result on fourth. Maybe maybe weeks before we get a result, not months. But but if it is Trump, Trump has said several times publicly. That he thinks the EU is worse than China. And I don't think he, I mean, (laughs) unlike Obama, he doesn't worry about who he needs to phone if he wants to know what Europe thinks about anything. He's not very interested, I think, in what Europe thinks about things. Um, What he wants is uh, Europe to buy more stuff from America and sell less to America. And so uh, I don't think it's a huge problem for us, if Trump wins, that we are no longer in the European Union. I think it's the opposite if Joe Biden wins, uh, because I think one of Biden's priorities will be uh, to restore the relationship and repair the relationship with Europe. Um, And we will still have a pivotal role in NATO because we're the second biggest defense spender and and we still have quite a lot of clout and leverage in NATO. But in terms of the EU, we're not around that table anymore. And uh, Biden, I think, will still go to Merkel. Um, until she retires, and the Americans will have to build up some new, you know, some new relationships. Um, I think they will probably look at the Dutch and the Swedes and other other Northern Europeans uh, as well. But um, up to them, up to them. Right. Uh, but you know, we're not around that table. That gives us, certainly in a Democrat administration, less clout.
0: Well, now that you've left uh, the, the diplomatic service, Kim, maybe you can be a tiny bit undiplomatic by us, by answering this question about global Britain, this concept of global Britain that the Prime Minister and others have been keen to espouse since the Brexit vote. Um, come 1st of January 2021, when the UK is totally out of the EU, no transition either, um, what parts of the global Britain strategy do you think uh, are, are credible? I think
1: it is, first of all, Paul, um, without wishing to be too critical of my own government, I think at the moment it's much more of a slogan than it is uh, a reality. And if you mean it on Global Britain, you've got to start pumping some resources into our network. You probably have to spend more on defence. You need to keep spending 0.7% of GDP on international development. Uh, You probably need to spend more on the Foreign Service as well um, and beef up uh, some of the embassies around the world, which have been stripped out post uh, 2008 financial crisis. And so we might have a British flag still in as many countries as we did, but the embassies have been hollowed out in, in quite a lot of uh, places. Uh, so you have got to do that. Um, but I'd uh, <laughs> say is, you can't really think of a worse time to be turning global Britain into a reality than when you are trying to pick up the pieces of economic wreckage uh, after the, the pandemic.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And as today's developments in the UK, where uh, it's looking like we are, like the second wave of the pandemic is poised over the UK and about to crash on our shores, which is going to involve more local lockdowns, I think, and more restrictions, and more closing of the temporary closing of things like the hospitality industry, so it will do more economic damage. Couldn't be a worse time to uh, to try and deliver global Britain, because if you haven't got any money, and if your priority is going to be things like infrastructure in the North and the Midlands, and more money for the National Health Service, and wherever, uh, I can't see where we're going to find the money for more defence spending, or more spending on, on our overseas network, or wherever. So... Um, So, you know, I think it's going to be a real, real struggle and I just question whether it's going to look at all credible in two or three years down down the track. Right.
0: We're coming to the end of this conversation, Kim. So let me ask you about something you write about towards the end of the book, which you call The Great Unraveling, Brexit, Trump and the Eclipse of Establishment Politics. For the benefit of those listening who have not read the book yet, what is your your thesis here?
1: My thesis, Paul, is that, that, I mean, there are unique features to Donald Trump that fueled his rise from businessman with a mixed record and reality TV star to the most powerful office on uh, on the planet, despite having never served a day in public office before. Um, And there were some unique features to the Brexit debate in the UK. Uh, And there's no question, however much... dishonesty was involved yeah. but there was some brilliant sloganizing uh, on the uh, on the leave campaign and you know they they fuel their campaign with emotion and the remainers fuel their campaign with facts and people in gray suits lecturing that, about the risks of brexit and uh, well we saw what we saw what happened. Um, but, it wasn't just about, about the brilliance of the Trump uh, election campaign in 2016 or the brilliance of the Leave campaign. People didn't vote for Brexit or for, um, for Trump because they were tired of winning so much under the mainstream political leaderships and political parties and politicians. There were some deep-seated grievances, some deep-seated unhappiness with uh, More conventional politics and more conventional politicians that prompted them to do what they did and as we deal with the consequences of this new populism it's important to remember that one of the reasons it's there is because uh because mainstream politicians got it wrong over the previous decade or two and look the thesis in the book is the three I's, immigration, uh, identity, and uh, inequality, were factors um, that made people extremely unhappy with the way they had been led and the decisions taken by the governments that had been elected over the last last decade or longer. uh, And that's why they turned to these radical populist alternatives. And I don't think we are going to get back to of politics and sort of leadership. I personally would like to see until uh, until the mainstream parties, you know, think about where they went wrong and try to uh, you know, to do better in future. Uh, and you know, this is why this is why we are where we are. It's not you know, Trump and Brexit uh, are also symptoms of the failures of politicians over the last decade. They're not just these unique
0: phenomena. Right. Well, we have to leave it there. Kim Darek, thank you very much for your time.
1: Thank you. Thank you for giving me the opportunity.